Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, very brief housekeeping today. Just a couple of announcements. First, I will be doing another Zoom call for subscribers, and that will be on October 7th. I'm not sure if that's going to be an open-ended Q&A or whether the questions will be focused on a theme. I'll decide that in the next few days. But anyway, the last one was fun, and hopefully the fun will continue. So I will see you on October 7th, and you should be on my mailing list if you want those details. Also, there's a few exciting changes happening over on the waking up side of things. So pay attention over there if you're an app user. And I think that's it. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Tristan Harris. Tristan has been on the podcast before, and he is one of the central figures in a new documentary, which is available on Netflix now, and that film is The Social Dilemma, which discusses the growing problem of social media and the fracturing of society, which is our theme today. So, as you'll hear, I highly recommend that you watch this film. But I think you'll also get a lot from this conversation. I mean, if you're looking out at the world and wondering why things seem so crazy out there, social media is very likely the reason. Or it's the reason that is aggregating so many other reasons. It's the reason why we can't converge on a shared understanding of what's happening so much of the time. We can't agree about whether specific events attest to an epidemic of racism in our society, or whether these events are caused by some other derangement in our thinking, or just bad incentives, or bad luck. We can't agree about what's actually happening. And amazingly, we are about to hold a presidential election that, it seems, our democracy might not even survive. Really, it seems valid to worry whether we might be tipped into chaos by merely holding a presidential election. It's fairly amazing that we are in this spot, and social media is largely the reason. It's not entirely the reason. A lot of this falls on Trump, some of it falls on the far left, but the fact that we can't stay sane as a society right now, that is largely due to the fact that we are simply drowning in misinformation. Anyway, that is the topic of today's conversation. And I was very happy to get Tristan back on the podcast. Apologies for the uneven sound. Pre-COVID, we were bringing everyone into studios where they could be professionally recorded. Uh, Now, We're shipping people Zoom devices and microphones, but occasionally the technology fails and we have to rely on the Skype signal. So what you're hearing today is Skype. It's actually pretty good for Skype, but apologies if any of the audio sounds subpar. And now I bring you Tristan Harris. I am here with Tristan Harris. Tristan, it's great to get you back on the podcast. 
It's really good to be back, Sam. It's been a while since the first time I was on here. Yeah. We will cover similar ground, but a lot has happened since we last spoke, and it's, it's to my eye, everything has gotten worse. <laughs> so we, you know, there's, just, there's, there's more damage to analyze and try to prevent in the future. But before we jump in, remind people who you are and how you come at these things. What's your brief bio for that's relevant to this conversation? Yeah, well, just to say briefly, I guess one of the reasons why we're talking now um, and most relevant to my recent biography is the new Netflix documentary that just came out called The Social Dilemma, Yeah, you know, in which all these technology insiders are speaking about the Frankenstein that they've created. We'll get into that later. Prior to that, I was a Google design ethicist coming in through an acquisition of a technology company that I'd started called Apture that Google acquired. And after being at the company for a little while, migrated into a role of thinking about how do you ethically steer 2 billion people's attention when you hold the collective human psyche in your, in your hands? And then prior to that, as you know, is also discussed in the film, is I was at, at Stanford and studied computer science, human-computer interaction, but specifically at a lab called the Persuasive Technology Lab, which I'm sure we'll get into, which relates to just sort of a lifelong view of how is the human mind vulnerable to psychological influence and have had a fascination with those topics from cults to sleight of hand magic to mentalism and <laughs> heroes like Darren Brown, who's a mutual friend of ours, mm. and how that plays into the, the things that we're seeing with technology. Yeah. So I, I just want to reiterate that this film, The Social Dilemma, is on Netflix now. And yeah, that's the proximate cause of this conversation. And it really is, it's great. It really covers the issue in a compelling way. So I highly recommend people go see that. And uh, they don't have to go anywhere, obviously. Just open Netflix. <laughs> And um, there's no irony there. I, I, w I would count Netflix as, I'm sure they're an offender in, in some way, but they're, I mean, their business model really is distinct from much of what we're going to talk about. I mean, they just, they could have made the choice to, they're clearly gaming people's attention because they're, they want to cancel churn and they want people on the platform and deriving as much value from the platform as possible. But there is something different going on over there with respect to not not being part of the ad economy and, and the attention economy in, in quite the same way. That's a distinction we could draw later on. But is there a bright line between proper subscription services like that and what we're going to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think the core question we're here to talk about is in, what, in which ways and where are technology's incentives aligned with the public good? And I think the problem that brings us here today is where technology's incentives are misaligned with the public good through the business model of advertising and through models like user-generated content, clearly because we live in a finite attention economy where there's only so much human attention. We are managing a commons, a collective environment. And because Netflix, like any other actor, including politicians, including conferences, including you or, my, you or I or this podcast or my podcast, we're all competing for the same finite resource. And so there's a difference, I think, in how different business models engage in an attention economy, mm. but a business model in which the cost of producing things that are going to reach exponential numbers of people, exponential broadcast in the case of Netflix, but also in the case of these other companies, there's a difference when there's a sense of ethics or responsibility or privacy or ch uh, child's controls that we add into that equation. And I'm sure we'll get more into those topics. Right. Okay, so let's take it from the top here. What's wrong with social media at this point? If you could boil it down to the, the elevator pitch answer, what, what is the problem 
that we're going to unspool over the next hour <laughs> or so. Well, it's funny because the film actually opens with that prompt, the blank stares of many technology insiders, mm -hmm. including myself, because I think it's so hard to define exactly what this problem is. There's clearly a problem of incentives, but beneath that, there's a problem of what those incentives are doing and where the exact harms show up. And the way that we frame it in the film and in a big presentation we gave at the SF Jazz Center back in April 2019 to you know, a bunch of the top technologists and, and people in the industry was to say that while we've all been looking out for the moment when AI would overwhelm human strengths and when we would get the singularity, when would AI take our jobs, when would it be smarter than humans, we missed this much, much earlier point when technology didn't overwhelm human strengths, but it undermined human weaknesses. And you can actually frame the cacophony of grievances and scandals and problems that we've seen in the tech industry from distraction to addiction to polarization to bullying to harassment to the breakdown of truth, all in terms of progressively hacking more and more of human vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So if we take it from the top, you know, our brain's short-term memory system have seven plus or minus two things that we can hold. When technology starts to overwhelm our short-term and working memory, we feel that as a problem called distraction. Oh my gosh, I can't remember what I was doing. I came here to open an email. I came here to go to Facebook to look something up, but now I got sucked down into something else. That's a problem of overwhelming the human limit uh, and weakness of just our, our working memory. When it overwhelms our dopamine systems and our reward systems, that we feel that as a problem called addiction. When it taps into and exploits our reliance on stopping cues, that at some point I will stop talking and that's a cue for you to keep going. When technology doesn't stop talking and it just gives you the infinite bottomless bowl, we feel that as a problem called addiction or addictive use. When technology exploits our social approval and giving us more and more social approval. We feel that as a problem called teen depression because suddenly children are dosed with social approval every few minutes and are hungry for more likes and comparing themselves in terms of the currency of likes. And when technology hacks the limits of our heuristics for determining what is true, for example, that that Twitter profile who just commented on your tweet five seconds ago, that photo looked pretty real. They've got a bio that seems pretty real. They've got 10,000 followers. We only have a few cues that we can use to discern what is real. And bots and deepfakes, and I'm sure we'll get into GPT-3, actually overwhelm that human weakness. So we don't even know what's true. So I think the, the main thing that we really want people to get is through a series of misaligned incentives, which we'll further get into, technology has overwhelmed and undermined human weaknesses. And many of the problems that we're seeing as separate are, are actually the same. And just one more thing on this analogy, it's kind of like, you know, collectively, this digital fallout of addiction, teen depression, and suicides polarization, uh, breakdown of truth, we, we think of this as a collective digital fallout or a kind of climate change of culture that much like the you know, oil extractive economy that we have been living in an extractive race for attention, there's only so much. When it starts running out, we have to start fracking your attention by splitting your attention into multiple streams. I want you watching an iPad and a phone and the television at the same time because that lets me triple the size of the attention economy. But that extractive race for attention creates this global climate change of culture. And much like climate change, it happens slowly, it happens gradually, it happens chronically. It's not this sudden immediate threat, it's this slow erosion of the social fabric. And that collectively we called in that presentation human downgrading, but you can call it whatever you want. The point is that, you know, if, if you think back to the climate change movement, before there was climate change as a, as a cohesive understanding of emissions and linking to, to climate change, we had some people working on polar bears, some people working on the coral reefs. We had some people working on species loss in the Amazon. And it wasn't until we had an encompassing view of how all these problems get worse 
that that we start to get change. And so we're really hoping that this film can act as a kind of catalyst for a global response to this really destructive thing that's happened to society. Mm. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate for a moment using some of the elements you've already put into play, because you and I are going to impressively agree throughout this conversation on the nature of the problem, but I'm channeling a skeptic here, and it's, it's actually not that hard for me to empathize with a skeptic, because as you point out, it really it takes a fair amount of work to pry the scales from people's eyes on this point, and, and the, the nature of the problem though it really is everywhere to be seen, it's surprisingly elusive, right? So if you, if you mm-hmm. reference something like, you know, a spike in teen depression and self-harm and suicide, you know, there's no one who's going to pretend not to care about that. And then it really is just the question of, you know, what's the causality here? And is it really a matter of exposure to social media that is driving it? And and I think, I don't think people are especially skeptical of that. And that's a, that's a discrete problem that I think most people would easily understand and mm-hmm. be concerned about. But the more general problem for all of us is is harder to keep in view. And it's so when you talk about things, again, these are things you've already conceded in a way. So like attention has been a finite resource always. And everyone has always been competing for it. So you know if you're gonna publish a book, you are part of this race for people's attention. If you if you were going to release something on the radio or television, it was always a matter of trying to grab people's attention. And as you say, we're trying to do it right now with this podcast. So it's when considered through that lens, it's hard to see what is fundamentally new here, right? So yes, this is zero sum. And then the question is, is it good content or not? I think people want to say, right? It's just this is just a matter of interfacing in some way with human desire and human curiosity. And you're either doing that successfully or not. And what's so bad about really succeeding, you know, just fundamentally succeeding in a way that, yeah, I mean, you can call it addiction, but really it's just what people find captivating. It's what people want to do. They want, they want to grant their attention to the next video that is absolutely enthralling. But how is that different from you know leafing through the pages of you know a hard copy of Vanity Fair in the year 1987 and feeling that you really want to read the next article rather than work or do whatever else you were, you, you thought you were going to do with your afternoon? So there's that, and then there's this sense that the fact that advertising is is involved and really really the, the foundation of everything we're going to talk about. What's so bad about that? I mean, so really, it's a story of ads just getting better. You know, I, I don't have to see ads for Tampax anymore, right? I, 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 mm-hmm. I'm, I go online and I, I see ads for things that I probably want or, or nearly want because I abandoned them in my Zappos shopping cart, right? So what, what's wrong with that? And I think most people are stuck in that place. Like they just, we have to do a lot of work to bring them into the place of the conversation where the emergency becomes salient. And so let's start there. Gosh, there's so much good stuff to unpack here. So on the attention economy, obviously, we've always had it. We've had television competing for attention, radio, and we've had evolutions of the attention economy before. Competition between books, competition between newspapers, competition between television to more engaging television to more channels of television. So in many ways, this isn't new. But I think what we really need to look at 
is what was mediating where that attention went to. Mediating is a big word. Smartphones, we check out, we check our smartphones, you know, a hundred times or something like that per day. They are intimately woven into the fabric of our daily lives and ever more so because of if we pre-establish addiction or just this addictive checking that we have that any moment of anxiety, we turn to our phone to look at it. So it's intimately woven into where the attention starting place will come from. It's also taken over our fundamental infrastructure for our basic verbs. Like if I want to talk to you or talk to someone else, my phone has become the primary vehicle for just about for many, many verbs in my life, whether it's ordering food or speaking to someone or, you know, figuring out what I, where to go on, on a map. We are increasingly reliant on the central node of our smartphone to be a router for where all of our attention goes. So that's the first part of this intimately woven nature and the fact that it's our social, it's part of the social infrastructure by which we rely on. We can't avoid it. And part of what makes technology today inhumane is that we're reliant on infrastructure that's not safe or contaminated for many reasons that we'll, we'll get into later. A second reason that's different is the degree of asymmetry between, let's say, that newspaper editor or journalist who is writing that enticing article to get you to turn to the next page versus the level of asymmetry of when you watch a YouTube video and you think, yeah, this time I'm just going to watch one video and then I've got to go back to work and you wake up from a trance, you know, two hours later and you say, man, what happened to me? I should have had more self-control. What that misses is there's literally the Google, you know, Google's billions of dollars of supercomputing infrastructure on the other side of that slab of glass in your hand, pointed at your brain, doing predictive analytics on what would be the perfect next video to keep you here. And the same is true on Facebook. You think, okay, I've sort of been scrolling through this thing for a while, but I'm just going to swipe up one more time and then I'm done. Each time you swipe up with your finger, you know, you're activating a Twitter or a Facebook or a TikTok supercomputer that's doing predictive analytics which has billions of data points on exactly the thing that'll keep you here. And I think it's important to expand this metaphor in a way that you've talked about on, I think in your show before, about just the power, increasing power and computational power of, of AI. When you think about a supercomputer pointed at your brain, trying to figure out what's the perfect next thing to show you, that's on one side of the screen. On the other side of the screen is my prefrontal cortex, which has evolved millions of years ago and doing the best job it can to do goal articulation, goal retention, and memory, and sort of staying on task, self-discipline, et cetera. So who's going to win in that battle? Well, a good metaphor for this is, let's say you or I were to play Gary Kasparov at chess. Like, why would you or I lose? It's because, you know, there I am on the chessboard, and I'm thinking, okay, if I do this, he'll do this, but if I do this, he'll do this, and I'm playing out a few moves ahead on the chessboard. But when Gary looks at that same chessboard, he's playing out a million more moves ahead than I can, right? And that's why Gary's going to win and beat you and I every single time. But when Gary, the human, is playing chess against the best supercomputer in the world, no matter how many million moves ahead that Gary can see, the supercomputer can see billions of moves ahead. And when he beats Gary, who is the best human chess player of all time, he's beaten like the human brain at chess because that was kind of the best one that we had. And so when you look at the degree of asymmetry that we now have, when you're sitting there innocuously saying, okay, I'm just going to watch one video and then I'm out. We have to recognize that we have an exponential degree of asymmetry and they know us and our weaknesses better than we know ourselves, to borrow also from a, a mutual friend, Yuval Harari. So I, I guess I, I still think the nature of the problem will seem um, debatable even at this point. So Because again, you're, you're talking about successfully gaming attention, making you know, various forms of content more captivating, you know, stickier, you know, people are losing time, perhaps that they that didn't 
know they were going to give over to their devices. But, yeah, what's so but they were doing that? that with their televisions anyway. I mean, the, the statistics, long before we had smartphones, the statistics on watching television were appalling. I forget what they were. There was something like, you know, the average television was on seven hours a day in the home. You know, so that the picture was of people in a kind of Aldous Huxley-like, you know, dystopia just plugged in to the boob tube and being fed, you know, bad commercials and you know, and therefore being monetized in, in some way that is, strikes people as not fundamentally different from what's happening now. I mean, yes, there was, there was less to choose from. You know, there were with, you know, three different types of laundry detergent, and it was not a matter of a really fine-grained manipulation of people's behavior, but it was still, if you wanted, from the perspective of what seems optimal, it still had a a character of propagandizing people, you know, with certain messages that seem less than optimal. You could, I'm sure, you could talk about teens or just people in general having, you know, body dysmorphia around ideal presentations of human beauty that were, you know, unrealistic. You know, whether Photoshop was involved at that point or not. I mean, it was just good lighting and good makeup and and you know, selection effects that make it make people feel obliged to aspire to irrational standards of beauty. All of these problems that we tend to reference in a conversation like this seemed present. I think the the thing that strikes me as fundamentally new, and this is brought out in your in the film by several people, relates to the issue of misinformation and the siloing of information, so which really does strike me as genuinely new. So, and there, there, there are a few analogies here that I find especially arresting. I mean, what, the one thing that Jaron Lanier said, he says it in the film, and he he said it on this podcast a year or so ago, which is, I think, frames it really well. Is that just imagine if Wikipedia would present you with information in a way that was completely dependent on your search history, you, all the data on you that had been collected that's showing your biases and your preferences and the, way, the ways in which your attention can be gamed, so that when each of us went to Wikipedia, not only was there no guarantee that we'd be seeing precisely the same facts, rather there was a guarantee that we wouldn't be, right? That we're in this sort of ha- right. that this shattered epistemology now, and we built this machine. So the very machinery we're using to deliver information, really the only, what is almost the only source of information for most people now, is a machine that is designed to partially inform people, misinform people, spread conspiracy theories and lies faster than facts, spread outrage faster than disinterested, nuanced analysis of stories. So it's like we have designed an apparatus whose purpose is to fragment our worldview and to make it impossible for us to fuse our cognitive horizon so that if if you and I start out in a different place, we can never converge in the middle of this psychological experiment. And that's the thing that strikes me for which there is no analog in all previous moments of culture. Yeah, that's 100% right. And I mean, if we jump to the chase about what is most concerning, it is the breakdown of a shared reality and the breakdown, therefore, of our capacity to have conversations. And, you know, you said it, that if we don't have conversation, we have violence. 
And when you shatter the epistemic basis of how do we know what we know, and I've been living literally in a different reality, a different Truman show, as Roger McNamee would say, mm. for the last 10 years. And we have to keep in mind, we're about 10 years into this radicalization, polarization process, where each of us have been fed, you know, really a more extreme view of reality for, for quite a long time, that what I really want people to do isn't just to say, is technology addictive or these small questions? It's really to rewind the tape and to ask, you know, how has my mind been fundamentally warped? And so just to go back to the points you made a second ago, you know, so what, you know, YouTube is, is giving us information. Well, first on that chess match I mentioned of, you know, are we going to win? Or are they going to win? 70% of the billion hours a day that people spend on YouTube is actually driven by the recommendation system by what the recommendation system is choosing for us. Just imagine a TV channel where you're not choosing 70% of the time. Then the question becomes, as you said, well, what is the default programming of that channel? Is it, you know, Walter Cronkite and some kind of semi-reliable communal sense-making, as our friend Eric would say, or is it actually giving us more and more extreme views of reality? So three examples of this several years ago, if you were a teenager and looked at a diet video on YouTube, all the, the several of the videos on the right-hand side would be thinspo anorexia videos because those things were better at keeping people's attention. If you looked at, you know, the 9-11 uh, videos, it would look at, it would give you Alex Jones, Infowars, 9-11 conspiracy theories. YouTube recommended Alex Jones conspiracy theories 15 billion times in the right-hand sidebar, which is more than the combined traffic of the New York Times, Fox News, MSNBC, Guardian, et cetera, combined. So the scale of what has actually transpired here is, is so enormous that I think it's really hard for people to get their head around because also, each of us only see our own Truman Show. Mm. So the fact that I'm saying these stats, you might say, well, I've never seen a dieting video or anorexia video, or someone else might say, I've never seen those conspiracy theories. It's because it fed you some different rabbit hole. You know, Guillaume Chaslow, who's the YouTube recommendations engineer in the film, talks about in an interview we did with him on, on our podcast, how he, you know, the algorithm found out that he liked seeing these videos of plane landings. And it's this weird addictive corner of YouTube where people like to see plane mm. landings or the example of flat earth conspiracy theories, which are recommended hundreds of millions of times. And, you know, because we've been doing this work, Sam, for such a long time, and I've talked to so many people, you know, I hear from teachers and parents who say, you know, suddenly all these kids are coming into my classroom and they're saying the Holocaust didn't happen, or they're saying the earth is flat. And it's like, where are they getting these ideas, especially in a time of coronavirus where parents are forced to sit their kids in front of the new television, the new digital pacifier, which is really just YouTube, you know, they're basically at the whims of whatever that automated system is showing them. And of course, the reason economically why this happened is because the only way that you can broadcast to 3 billion people in every language is you don't pay any human editors, right? You, you, you take out all of those expensive people who sat at the, you know, New York Times or Washington Post editorial department or PBS editorial department saying what's good for kids in terms of Saturday morning or Sesame Street. And you say, let's have a machine decide what's good for people. And the machine cannot know the difference between what we'll watch versus what, we'll, what we actually really want. And the Easiest example there is if I'm driving down a freeway on the five in LA, and according to YouTube, if my eyes go off to the side and I see a car crash and everybody's eyes go to the side, they look at the car crash, then the world must really want car crashes. And the next thing you know, there's a self-reinforcing feedback loop of they're feeding us more car crashes and we keep looking at the car crashes, they feed us more and more. That's exactly what's happened over the last 10 years with conspiracy theories. And one of the best predictors of whether you will believe in a new conspiracy is whether you already believe in one. And YouTube and Facebook have never made that easier than to sort of open the doorways into a more paranoid style of thinking. And just one last thing before handing it back is, you know, I think this is not to vilify all conspiracy thinking. You know, some conspiracies are, are real or some 
notions of, you know, what Epstein did with, you know, running a, a child sex ring is all real. So, but we need a more nuanced way to see this because when you're put into a surround sound rabbit hole where everything is a conspiracy theory, everything that's ever happened over the last 50 years is part of some master plan. And there's actually this secret cabal that controls everything and Bill Gates and 5G and conspiracy coronavirus. You know, this is where the thing goes off the rails. And I think this really became apparent to people once they were stuck at home where you're not actually going out into the world, you're not talking to as many neighbors. And so the primary meaning-making and sense-making system that we are using to navigate reality are these social media products. And I think that has exacerbated the kind of craziness we've seen you know, over the last six months. Mm. Yeah, well, you're really talking about the, the formation of cults. And, and I know you've thought about, a lot about cults. And what we have here is a kind of cult factory or you know, a, a cult industrial complex that we have built inadvertently. And again, what's the inadvertence is is really interesting because it, it does it relates directly to the business model. It's, it's because we have decided that the only way to pay for the internet, or the primary way to pay for the internet, is with ads. And when we'll get into the, the mechanics of this, that is the thing that has dictated everything else we're talking about. And it's it, it really is incredible to think about because we you know we have created a system where indisputably some of the smartest people on earth i mean this is really the where are some of our brightest minds are using the most powerful technology we've ever built not to cure cancer or mitigate climate change or respond to a very real and pressing problem like a an emerging pandemic they're spending their time trying to get better at gaming human attention more effectively to sell random products and even random conspiracy theories, right? In fact, they're doing all of this not merely as a, in a mode of failing to address other real problems, like mitigating climate change or responding to a pandemic. The consequences of what they're doing is making it harder to respond to those real problems. I mean, we have, you know, climate change and pandemics are now impossible to talk about as a result of what's happening on social media. And this is is a, a direct result of how social media is being paid for, or is it how it has decided to make money. And, you know, as you say, it's making it impossible for us to understand one another because people are not seeing the same things. I mean, like, I, on a daily basis, have this experience of looking at people out in the world, you know, on my own social media feed, or he's just just reading news accounts of what somebody is into. I mean, let's say somebody is into QAnon, right? And this cult is not too strong a word. This cult of indeterminate size, but you know, massively well subscribed at this point. Of people who believe that not only is child sexual abuse a real problem out there in the world, as more or less everyone believes, but they believe that there are uncountable numbers of high-profile, well-connected people, you know, from the Clintons on down, who are part of a cannibalistic cult of child sexual slavery, you know, where they extract the the bodily essences of children so as to prolong their lives, right? I mean, it's just, it's as crazy as crazy gets. And so so when I, as someone who's outside this information stream, view this behavior, people look frankly insane to me, right? But, and some of these people have to be crazy, right? This has to be acting like a bug light for, for crazy people. Of at least of some sort, but most of the people are 
presumably normal people who are just drinking from a fire hose of misinformation and just yeah. different information from the information I'm seeing. And so it's, their, their behavior is, is actually inexplicable to me. And there's so many versions of this now. I don't think it's too much to say that we're, we're driving ourselves crazy. We're creating a culture that is not compatible with basic sanity. I mean, we're amplifying incommensurable delusions everywhere all at once. And we've yep. created a, a system where true information, you know, real facts and you know, valid you know, skeptical analysis of what's going on isn't up to the task of dampening down the spread of lies. And I mean, maybe there's some other variable here that accounts for it, but it's amazing to me how much of this is born of simply the, the choice over a business model. Well, I think this is, to me, the most important aspect of what the film hopefully will do is right now we're living in the shattered prism of a shared reality where we're each trapped in a separate shard. And like you said, when you look over at someone else and say, how can they believe those crazy things? How can they be so stupid? Aren't they seeing the same information that I'm seeing? And the answer is they're not seeing the same information that you're seeing. They've been living literally in a completely different feed of information than you have. And that's actually one of the other, I think, psychological, not so much vulnerabilities, but we did not evolve to assume that every person you would see physically around you would, inside of their own mind, be actually living in a completely different virtual reality than the one that you live mm -hmm. in. So nothing from an evolutionary perspective would enable us to have empathy with the fact that each of us have our own little virtual reality in our own mm -hmm. minds, and that each of them could be so dramatically, not just a little bit, but so dramatically different. Because another aspect you mentioned when you brought up cults at the beginning of what you said was the power of groupthink and the power of an echo chamber, where you know many of what's going, many of the things that are going on in conspiracy theory groups on on Facebook. I mean, the pandemic video spread actually through a massive network of QAnon groups. There's actually been a capturing of the uh, new spirituality and sort of in psychedelics type community into the QAnon mm -hmm. world. Interestingly, which are Great. now that's um, what these people uh, need all, acid. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Doesn't sound like a good addition right. to an already mad world. But I, I think if we zoom out, it's like the question is who's in control of human history right now? Are human beings authoring our own choices? Or by the fact that we've seeded the information that feeds into three billion people's brains meant that we have actually seeded control to machines? Because the machines control the information that all all three billion of us are are getting. It's become the primary way that we make sense of the world. And to jump ahead of, and mind read some of the, the skeptics out there, some people saying, well, hold on a second, weren't there filter bubbles and narrow partisan echo chambers with Fox News and MSNBC and people sticking with those channels? Yes, that's true. But I would ask people to question, where are the editorial departments of those television channels getting their news from? Well, they're just living on Twitter. <laughs> and Twitter's algorithms are recommending, again, that same partisan echo chamber uh, back to you. If you follow, as you had Renee Diresta on your podcast, who's a dear friend and uh, amazing colleague talking about how, you know, radicalization spreads on, on social media. And she worked back in the State Department in 2015, where they noticed that if you followed one ISIS terrorist on, on Twitter, the suggested user system would say, oh, there's suggested people you might want to follow. And it gives you 10 more suggested ISIS terrorists for you to follow. Likewise, if you were a new mom, as she was several years ago, and you joined some new mom groups, specifically groups for like making your own baby food, kind of a do-it-yourself organic uh, mom's movement, well, Facebook's algorithm said, well, hold on, what are other suggested groups we might show for you that tend to correlate with users uh, in this mom group that keeps people really engaged? 
And one of the top recommendations was the anti-vaccine conspiracy theory groups. And when you join one of those, it says, well, those groups tend to be also in these QAnon groups and the chemtrails groups and the flat earth groups. And so you see very quickly how these tiny little changes, as they say, and Jaron says in the beginning of the film, you know, the business model of just changing your beliefs and identity, just 1%, you know, changing the entire world, 1% is a lot. It's like climate change, quite literally, mm -hmm. right? Where you only have to change the temperature a tiny bit and change the basis of what people are believing. And it changes the rest of reality. Because as you know, from confirmation bias, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And technology is laying the foundation of hammers that are looking for specific kinds of nails. Once you see the world in a paranoid conspiratorial lens, you are seeing, you're looking for evidence that confirms that belief. And that's happening on all sides. I, I'm, it's really a, a thing that's happened to all of us. This is why my biggest hope really in the global impact of the film, and this is not a marketing push, it's really a, a social impact push. Like I, I genuinely am concerned that there may be no other way to put Humpty Dumpty back together again than to show the world that we have created, that we need a new shared reality about that breakdown of our shared reality. Mm. There are many aspects to the ad model, and I think people can get, it doesn't take much work to convince people, as, as we've, I hope we have begun to hear, that the shattering of shared reality is a problem. It's at minimum a political problem. I mean, whether it's a, a social problem for you, you know, out in the world or in your primary relationships, to see the kind of hyper-partisanship we see now and the, and the just inability to converge on an account of basic facts that could mitigate that partisanship, I think people feel that that is a, a kind of assault on democracy. And then when you add the piece that bad actors like you know, the Russians or the Chinese or, or anyone can decide to deliberately game that system. I mean, just the knowledge that, you know, Russia is actively spreading, you know, Black Lives Matter information and pseudo-information so as to heighten the anguish and, and polarization on, on that topic in America. I mean, that just the fact that we built the tools by which they can do that, and they can do it surreptitiously, right? We don't see who's seeing these ads, right? You, you don't see the, the 50,000 people who were, who were targeted in a specific state for a specific reason. That is new and sinister, and I, I think people can understand that. But when you're, we're talking about the problem with sharing information or using our information in these ways, and, and I think we should get clear about what's happening here, because this is a distinction several people make in, in the film. It's not that these platforms sell our, our data, right? They don't really sell our data. They right. gather the data, they analyze the data, and what they sell are more and more accurate predictions of our behavior to advertisers. Right. And the ability to, and as that gets more refined, you really have a, as close as we've ever come to advertising being a kind of sure thing, right? Where it really, you know, it right. really works. And, and even there, people, I think most people won't necessarily care about that because if you tell them, Listen, that thing you really thought you wanted and went out and bought, you were played by the company. The company placed an ad with Facebook and Facebook delivered it to you because you were the perfect target of that ad. I think the person can, at the end of the day, own all of that process and say, and just subsume it with their satisfaction at having bought the thing they, they now actually want, right? Like, so yeah, I actually, but I, want, I wanted a, a new. Prius, 
right? I mean, that's it was time. I needed a new car, right? Like, there's some, whether it's confabulatory or not, there's some way in which they, they don't necessarily feel violated. And I think when, I think people think they care about privacy, but we don't really seem to care about privacy all that much. I mean, we care about convenience and we care about money. I mean, at bottom, nobody wants to pay for these things. No one wants to pay for Facebook. They don't want to pay for Twitter. They don't want to pay for most of what happens on the internet. And they're happy to be enrolled in this psychological experiment so that they don't have to pay for anything. And, and, that's, and the dysfunction of all of that is what we're trying to get across here. But it's, I'm always amazed that it's, you focus on it and parts of this monstrosity begin to disappear. You know, it's, like a, like a, it's very hard to keep what is wrong with this in view every right. moment all at once. And so uh, maybe for the moment, let's just focus on you know, information and privacy and, and the ad model and, and just how we should think about it. Well, when we talk about the advertising model, you know, people tend to think about the good faith users like you're talking about, you know, a Prius or a pair of shoes. What this misses, the ge geopolitical World War III information warfare that's happening right now. Because, you know, a line I say often is, you know, while we've been obsessed with protecting our physical borders as a country, we've left the digital border wide open. I mean, if Russia or China tried to fly a cruise missile or a bomber you know, plane into the United States, they'd be blasted out of the sky by the Pentagon. But when they try to fly an information bomb into the United States in our virtual infrastructure of Facebook, they're met by a white glove that says, yes, exactly which zip code and which African-American subdistrict would you like to target? Mm. And that, that is the core problem. We are completely unprotected when it comes to the virtual infrastructure. So if you go to the the roads and the air and the you know tele tele uh, telephone lines that we we use here in this country they're completely air capped from you know Russia or China but when most of the activity happening in our country happens in a virtual digital online environment you know as Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world meaning software and the digital world are consuming more and more of the physical world and the physical ways that we used to get around and the physical conversations we used to have that digital environment is basically the big five tech companies. It's all happening through the landscape of YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, et cetera. And, you know, how does an empire fall? You know, you use the power of an empire against itself. You know, after World War II, you know, we had all these nukes and the big powers couldn't do conventional wars with each other. So they had to use settler methods, plausible deniability, proxy wars. They'd be waging economic warfare, diplomatic warfare. But if you are Russia or Iran or Turkey, you know, and you don't want to see the U.S. in a position of global dominance, would you do, you know, a forward-facing attack on the country with all the nukes? You know, obviously not. But would you take the already existing tensions of that country and turn the enemy against himself? That's what Sun Tzu would say to do. You know, that's what Chinese military strategy would say to do. And Facebook just makes that a trillion times easier. So, you know, if I was China, I would want extreme right and extreme left groups to proliferate and fight each other. And, you know, we, we know that this is basically happening and this has been stoking up groups on all sides. You know, I can go into your country and create an army of bots that look just as indistinguishable from regular people. If I'm China, I'm running TikTok and I can, you know, manipulate the political discourse in your country with the fact that I have 300 million Americans, you know, uh, on my service. It might even be bigger than that, if I'm remembering correctly. So I think, you know, the advertising model isn't just that it enables these good faith uses. I think people have to recognize the amount of manipulated and deceptive activities that are almost like you said, untraceable. Mm. I mean, the fact that I'm saying all this to you and the listeners out there would sound like a conspiracy theory until you know the researchers who are tracking these things. Because if you're, you know, if you're just looking at your own feed, I'm living in California. I'm not actually part of a targeted group. So I don't really see these things. 
And it's actually invisible to me, anybody who is. So again, our psychological vulnerabilities here, technology is not allowing us to empathize with people who are closest to being harmed by these systems. Yeah, okay. So I I think people can get the central fear here, which is that it seems at best difficult, more likely impossible, to run a healthy democracy on bad information. I mean, if we can do it for a few years, we probably can't do it for a century. Something has to change here. We can't be feeding everyone lies or half-truths, different lies and different half-truths all at once, 24 hours a day, year after year, and hope to have a healthy society, right? So that's a discernible piece of this problem that I think virtually everyone will understand. And then when you add the kind of the emotional valence of all these lies and half-truths, people get that there's a problem amplifying outrage, right? I mean, the fact that the thing that is most captivating to us is the feeling of in-group outrage pointed outward toward the out-group for whom we have contempt growing into hatred. That's the place we are so much of the time on social media. That mm-hmm. runs the, mach- you know, the, the gears of this machinery faster than, than any other emotion. And whatever the, you know, if that changes tomorrow, if it turns out that, you know, sheer terror is better than outrage, well, then the algorithm will find that and it'll be amplifying terror. But the thing that you have to be sure of is that it's contained in the very word, you know, a dispassionate take on current events is never going to be the thing that gets this, this machinery running hottest. That's right. And so I, I think people can get that. But when we talk about possible remedies for this problem, then I, I really think it, it's hard to see a path forward. And so I, I mean, I, I, there are a few ways to come at this. I mean, one is the distinction between platforms versus publishers, right? So, so you know, all of these companies want to be viewed and have struggled to view themselves as neutral platforms, which really need take and you know, can take no responsibility for what's appearing on their servers. They just, it's all user-generated content, got this you know, billion-fold profusion of articles and, and images and videos. Who could possibly curate this effectively? They've all, in unison, thrown up their hands and said, we can't do it. And now that they're getting a lot of pressure to view themselves as publishers and exercise some editorial control. So let's, let's start there. I mean, even as, as worried as I am about the status quo, I'm also really worried about exercising editorial control in a way that does more harm than good. So mm-hmm. how do you view the path forward into you know, remedies here? First, it's, it's incredibly hard on, on, your, on your earlier point about outrage running the world. You know, we, we joke that one conspiracy that is correct is that lizard people do run the world because technology has made us all operate out of our lizard mm-hmm. brains. So we have now become and made true the lizard conspiracy theory from our reptile brains. You know, I, I think these things are, are, are deeper. I think we have to start with the question of, you know, what does a healthy society look like and what kind of information helps a democracy work well? One thing to sort of diagnose part of what went wrong is the lowering cost of production of human attention, meaning the capture of human attention, because it used to be you had to pay professional 
journalists who went through, you know, some kind of training, media ethics, standards, fact-checking, et cetera. There's some kind of standards as it makes it through these expensive gatekeepers. And those are the primary places that we are getting information. The reason that the advertising business model was so successful in these technology companies is because essentially we are the free unpaid labor doing all the content production work. Mm -hmm. We are generating the videos, we are generating the text. And instead of paying a journalist $70,000 a year to write that content, or instead of paying an editor to decide, is this true? Is this real? And have some kind of accountability or libel law. We are each the free attention drivers. I think of it like Uber, you know, we're the Uber drivers of attention, driving around attention in these little cars, but we're doing it all for free, all so that this bigger company can, can get paid. And of course, in exchange for that, we get the capacity to reach people. But that, that actually even gets worse when you think about advertising on TikTok, where essentially the manipulation is, here is a hashtag, like, you know, do something with Doritos, do a dance for Doritos. And you have all these children, actually, you know, 13-year-old, 14-year-olds dancing doing like a Doritos dance, and they're actually doing the user-generated advertising, meaning we went from paying advertisers and creatives to come up with these expensive, highly produced things to now having children be the unknowing participants in generating the ads. So we have essentially all of this unpaid labor all duped by what makes this business model so profitable because now these companies' costs have gone to zero. Compared to the Wall Street Journal, you know, they're, they're, the costs of running their business are, are incredibly, incredibly low. And I think we have to ask, you know, what is the, the coupling of power and responsibility here? Typically, in the way we organize law and society, with increasing power always has to come increasing responsibility. You know, I can go to a kitchen store down the street and buy a knife set, and I don't have to do anything to do that. I don't have to show an ID, get a background check. But if I go buy a gun, I do need to show my ID, get a full background check, hopefully some notion of training. And obviously, if I'm going to launch ICBMs, which is an extension of the next powerful capacity, I probably needed to go to West Point and be part of a joint you know, decision-making of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So as we increase power, we tend to also link it with responsibility. And one thing that's happened with technology is a decoupling of narrative power, the ability to broadcast narrative and mimetic power with the responsibility. If I just spread something like Alex Jones and I reach 15 billion people more than the combined publishing and broadcasting power of the organizations I listed before, there's nothing coming back to me if I'm wrong. Until finally, I guess he was ended up being canceled by, uh, by the various tech platforms. But I think one thing we have to look at is making sure that power is coupled with some notion of responsibility. I mean, even if you look at podcasting, people can share facts, you know, willy nilly without, you know, people actually fact checking everything. I mean, not all podcasts actually fact check what their guests say. So in general, as we've democratized media, we've removed all of the constraints. And in general, the unconstrained actors tend to win more than the constrained actors. This is why fake news spreads six times faster than true news, is because if I think about like an organism that's sitting on a table, and it can only evolve in the directions of what's true. So it can only say things that are true. The grammar of each sentence that can be expressed has to be true. So it's essentially a very constrained entity. If I have on another side of the table, a unconstrained organism that represents everything that can just be said, and doesn't care whether it's true, credible, or real, that unconstrained organism can move faster, it can evolve more quickly, it can meet the mimetic listening points of your society. And so this is why we've created, without guardrails, a system in which unconstrained speech and unconstrained deceptive practice has no accountability. And I don't know exactly how we fix that, but I think I like framing it that way as a problem because 
in general, power has to be coupled with great responsibility. Hmm. Well, so let's say we decide to treat Facebook and Twitter and the other platforms like publishers and not not like internet infrastructure that is just... Here, analogies do a lot of work for people. So if you say that you're going to kick someone off Facebook or, or YouTube or Twitter because these platforms are private companies that can decide what sort of information they want to disseminate. And so you, kick, you can kick Nazis off. You can even kick Alex Jones off. People understand that, at least after you explain the kinds of content these people and groups were disseminating. Uh, I mean, Alex Jones was targeting the parents of Sandy Hook kids who were killed, you know, first graders, and saying that they were crisis actors and that their kids had never died. And I mean, it was just absolutely sociopathic message to be putting out there at scale. And he was doing it month after month. These parents of who had lost their kids were getting death threats by the the conspiracy-addled cult under Alex Jones. It was just insane behavior. And of course, this guy should mm -hmm. be deplatformed. But, but when you draw a, an analogy to something that's more like infrastructure or more like the public square, like let's say the phone company, should the phone company be able to deplatform Alex Jones? We don't want to host his phone calls anymore. You know, why should we? The guy's odious. Should we be able to turn off the power to his house? Where does that stop? And then, then there's the concern that just the people who will be making these editorial calls, right? The person who will think, okay, well, obviously we have to deplatform the Nazis, and then we have to deplatform Alex Jones. Many of these people making these decisions, because it, it can't be merely algorithmic in the end. I mean, it has to be informed by some human brains who decide how to tune the algorithm. We have abundant evidence at this point that what we will have on the other side of that is a bunch of woke 23-year-olds who will be deciding what is hate speech. And, you know, rather often someone like myself will fall on the wrong side of that, you know, or Joe Rogan right. or people who are, to my eye and ear, well within the Overton window. And if we're moving the window, we should be moving it. And yet, Given the kind of moral panic that's occurring disproportionately on the left now politically, there will be really an endless sequence of bad editorial decisions here. I mean, I'll give you one example. So like I just read today Andrew Sullivan, a great journalist and someone who, you know, while I don't agree with him on everything, I greatly respect him and, and consider him a friend. You know, he has a, he just wrote a review of your film, The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. and he, he loved it and he wrote a very, um, clear synopsis of it. And, you know, this was delivered into my inbox as an email because now his platform is a Substack email newsletter. And mm -hmm. it's only that because he was fired from New York Magazine because there was a, you know, a movement against him of, again, woke Gen Zers who were deeply offended, you know, in, into the core of their humanity over a, an issue of the New Republic that he had edited 25 years ago, coinciding with the release of Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve. Andrew edited a, an issue of the magazine, analyzing it pro and con. And the people who got him fired are precisely the people who will be deciding 
what counts as hate speech on YouTube or in Google yeah. or on Facebook. So I don't know how we solve this problem because I'm, uh, you can hear from everything I've said thus far this hour, I'm as concerned as anyone about conspiracy thinking, misinformation, political polarization, the gaming and, and derangement of, of attention, and all of the social problems that follow from that. But who's going to make these decisions? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. It relates to a more deep question, which is, who do we trust, right? Do you trust the Trump administration to make that decision? Do you trust Mark Zuckerberg to make that decision? Do you trust some minimum wage paid Facebook contractors in Arizona to make that decision? Or do you trust the Filipino workers, the content shop, sweatshop workers in Facebook's content farms that are doing the review of, you know, basically all days, if you haven't caught this, there's we call them psychological sweatshops or offshoring pain, where you have essentially people in developing countries whose daily job is to look at video after video or post after post of things that have been flagged, which includes suicides, self-harm, bullying, kind of the worst of human nature. And people are forced to look at this all day long. And in each case, you have a question of, do you trust any of those people to be making those decisions? And if you expand it out, before I go into this, Sam, it's hard because I, I kind of, I don't mean to sound so dark or so dystopian. I just want people to understand the scope, I think, of what we're talking mm -hmm. about. Because when, when I speak about these issues, we're, we're mostly talking about here in the U.S. where you have a disagreement about, you know, who should be moderated and how. When I look out and say, this Facebook has 3 billion users, and you look at a country like Zambia, where there's four major languages and none are spoken by more than 30% of the country, or in Ethiopia, where you have sort of Myanmar number two coming, um, where, for listeners who don't know, there was a genocide against the, the Rohingya minority, Muslim minority group, due to fake news that was spread by the government. Just to build that out a little bit, so on Facebook in Myanmar, basically being on the internet meant being on Facebook, and Facebook was used to spread a kind of hysteria around the Rohingya minority Muslims, and it was the lever that the mob could pull to initiate all of the violence that followed. And, and uh, Facebook, if memory serves, was pretty slow to understand their culpability there. That's right. I think they had something like four fact checkers who spoke Burmese in, in that country for of, of something like 13 million people who were online. And in that case, it's important for people to know that the reason they were online was not by accident or due to their own volition, but because of an aggressive Facebook program, I think called, well, Free Basics, or there's another program called uh, Facebook Operator Solutions, which basically they tell the telecommunications company if you get someone to sign up for Facebook when they get a phone, you'll be paid. And you know, if you just get a new phone, it comes pre-installed with the Facebook mm -hmm. app. So the Facebook app is the internet for that population. And I think something like 700 million accounts from around the world are subsidized by that program. So there really is a kind of digital colonialism in the sense that you are going into a country, creating an infrastructure, one that is not safe. And then when these kinds of hate-driven things start to happen, do you even have enough moderators in that language or are those incentives there? And you have to keep in mind the hundreds of countries that Facebook operates in and the dozens and dozens and hundreds of languages that Facebook has to do this moderation in. And so one of the kind of rules that I think is interesting to look at is, first of all, if you go back to the, the financial regulations after 2008, the notion of being an over-leveraged bank we made unviable with the Basel III sort of regulations on, on finance, the notion that you could be lending out way more money than you actually have as a reserve ratio on uh, in the bank. I think here, if you are creating a situation where the scope of harm is in the billions or the tens of millions, 
and you only have five content moderators who speak that language, you are a over leveraged content organization. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem we're going to have here is we're dealing with a situation based on automation. The only reason these businesses work in the first place is because they don't have human beings doing oversight. But the challenge here is that it's just not going to be viable, especially if you, and I'm sorry to bring listeners to the kind of next phase, because Sam, I think, you know, one thing that brings us together here is that we're also concerned about where these problems go in the future, not just what's been true in the past. And if you look at the ability to increasingly, increasingly simulate text and language to pass the Turing test and basically, you know, use GPT-3 to publish things that look completely indistinguishable from humans, let alone the fact that due to these small social media boxes, people are learning simpler and simpler grammar with shorter and shorter phrases. So it's easier and easier mm -hmm. to implement, to, to simulate their, their language and pass the Turing test. It is now possible in a user-generated content site to flood the zone with, frankly, bullshit and to do so in ways that, that create an overwhelming load for whatever content moderation staff that you have on file, which is why I really want people to get that we're living in a dangerous scenario where there simply isn't enough scale of harm that we have. And we're going to have to look at, I think, a more radical change in what social media is about. Right. I mean, GPT-3 is kind of like a nuclear bomb for trust. And that could be interesting. I hadn't thought about it this way until a few days ago, but it could force people to go back to who are the long-term, more loyal broadcasters and publishers that we trust. Not that they can't also be using GPT-3 to you know, use and make produce fake information, but that we would trust them because we can't trust your average user-generated content on the internet now. Not that you can really trust it now either, since we know I think something like 50% of tweets during the coronavirus epidemic were due to bots. 50% <laughs> of tweets spreading disinformation were due to bots. Ensuring whether or not you're actually hearing from the person you think you're hearing from is an additional problem layered on top of whether that person is credible in the first place, right? So, I mean, the, the prospect of, of deep fakes is very interesting, and we're going to have to get a handle on that, whether or not social media changes its game entirely. I mean, the fact that someone could cut together a piece of audio that seems to be from this podcast, and the person sounds exactly like me and exactly like you, and yet they were never us, they were never even people. These are just confections of AI passing the Turing test, saying things we've never said or thought, and that can now get spread to the ends of the earth. That's a problem that is independent of the business model of social media. And, you know, it's going to be amazing to, to not be able to trust, you know, even video of the, the president talking, right? I mean, that's just, that'll be yeah. an amazing thing. And that's soon coming. And of course, the much earlier point where just due to the fact that we know that it is possible, it is now possible to cast doubt okay. over anything that you see and claim that it might be fake and user generated. And we've seen that happen already. Right. Right. I want to talk about the election and the prospect that misinformation and the, the, the other variables we're talking about could tip us into something like a a civil war. I mean, that seems I mean, that six months ago, it would have seemed virtually insane to, you know, seriously be worried about that. But I mean, now it, it actually does not seem that far fetched. It really it's just, again, when you look at how this can be gamed by outside actors like Russia and China, and you just look at our own ambient level of political craziness, it's not hard to see that However, the election goes. I mean, it just seems either result 
could produce a, a crisis of legitimacy and a crazy counterreaction. And say, so if Trump loses, the idea that you know QAnon cultists might take to the streets with their AR-15s, that seems all too plausible at the moment. And if he wins, I think the hysteria on the far left is is likely to produce another break in in social order, which would provoke its own very heavy-handed government response, very likely. So it's almost it's almost harder to picture the election happening without some scary level of disorder one way or the other than it is to picture the disorder at this point. And again, so much of this, if not all of this, seems to be on the social media companies to help prevent. Perhaps you know more about what they may or may not be doing in the handful of weeks remaining here. But how concerned are you about the the election in particular? Well, Sam, again, zooming out to the scale of these problems everywhere, Facebook is managing something like 80 elections per year yeah. where they have to throw resources at, you know, I, I, listen, I care about this country just as much as you do and the upcoming election in just something like six or seven weeks. So I'm very concerned. I also just look at the growth rate. What is the rate equation for how fast are the harms and let's call it the madness machine growing? versus how much have they been able to change the products, change the design, change the growth of those problems through better incentives or different policy changes. They have not been very successful. I'd say we've gotten less than linear, <laughs> you know, sublinear kind of change on how different Facebook is today from three years ago, compared to also the maximum incentive for bad actors to be manipulating the platform to their benefit. So the reason why and I'm really not trying to toot the horn about the film. I just think that the only thing that that sort of scales to the speed of the problem is culture. We really need to be a self-aware culture about the vulnerabilities of our own mind, which is not a blame. It's not you're bad or you know we should feel wrong for the fact that we're biased or have confirmation bias or get distracted or that social approval is so powerful to us. It's that we we really don't have another way of dealing with it other than to become aware that our minds are not really going to be living in social media, at least a trustworthy sort of sense-making environment. That's kind of the maximum goal that, that I have is that we become a much more aware society mm. in using these things. Because, you know, as E.O. Wilson said, who's kind of the, we always use his, his fundamental quote as the foundation of our work at our nonprofit, the Center for Human Technology, which is the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions medieval institutions, and accelerating godlike technology. And if I think about the clock rates of those three different features of humanity, you know, our paleolithic emotions are baked, you know, thousands of years ago. Our medieval institutions are, you know, passing laws at a relatively slow rate. And then our accelerating godlike technology is generating new categories of harm faster than we've been able to, you know, build a cleanup truck and, and, and clean it up, right, or even prevent it from happening. And I say that not to scare people, but to try to get an honest appraisal of the different rate equations for what we're working with here. And the only thing that meets that rate equation, even though I totally embrace and hope that the film and our conversation and everything else from so many other activists in the field accelerate the need for good legislation around these issues to change the incentives of technology companies away from the harms that we've talked about. But the only thing that actually changes fast enough is if we can have a massive cultural movement that is in response to the fact not only that we can't depend on the platforms to fix these problems, 
But to rewind the tape and see that we're about 10 years into this mass psychology experiment that has warped the psychology of our minds. And that actually all of us are kind of running malware and bad code. It's not just that the other side is wrong. It's that all of us have been living in such narrow views of reality that we can no longer empathize with each other. And that shared understanding of why we're each so distorted is in my mind, I think the only thing that scales to the current moment, so long as we're all you know, able to kind of get on board with that. One small thing that gives me hope, I mean, there's so many different countries that have been targets of these problems we've been talking about today. The film I just found out is, is number one on Netflix in India, mm. um, the number one in Canada. And I think the fact that it can become something like a, a silent spring or inconvenient truth or, you know, a Thomas Paine, you know, common sense kind of uh, call to arms that we have to actually rewind our minds out of the entire psychology warp that we've been under. And the good news is I've been hearing from just families and from, you know, heads of state even. I mean, I, I can't name names, but there's several heads of state who've seen the film and been just ecstatic that this is out there, that we can become aware of what this has done to society. And I think that's the only thing that scales in the short term to the size and scope of the problem. Mm. So we have painted a, a fairly grim picture of the status quo and, and where this all might be heading. I, I love your concept of culture being the only thing that can move quickly enough to deal with this derangement. I mean, we, we really are talking about a derangement of culture in the end, and we need Presumably, we, we have some cognitive immune system, you know, either internal to our minds or that can be placed in culture that we can rely on. How do you view us responding to this problem? What should people do or think about possibly doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I realize that the conversation we've just had can leave people feeling, I can imagine, a bit dark, and I apologize for that. You know, I think we have a culture that has been filled with you know, cancer cells, cancer information cells, and we have to strengthen our collective immunity. We need better mimetic immunity from, you know, psi operations and marketing and everything that's happening before the election. And I think, you know, just like you wouldn't throw a plastic bottle on the street outside, you know, I think we shouldn't be littering information that we are not expert in. You know, I don't share information about coronavirus vaccine timelines because, you know, I, I know that I don't know much about that topic. Um, I think we need to all be deeper researchers of the incomplete information that's been given to us, be better at asking each other to explain their narratives to us because we may not have lived in the, you know, epistemology that they've been living in in their, in their reality swap, learning how to better steel man each other's perspectives and unfollow outrage media. You know, I do not follow any outrage media, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or groups with thousands of people sharing information with utter certainty. I think we have to realize that these are not safe places to be getting our information. Mm. And we really need to rebuild our kind of cultural and epistemic immune system, realizing that no one wins in an environment where no one knows what's true. Like this is not something that one side wins, right? This is a situation where everybody loses because whether you care about climate change or racism or inequality and you want to deal with these issues, it all depends on coordination and people coming to some kind of consensus on what is real and then what do we want to do about it. And I'm hoping that something like the film and more of a cultural movement will form afterwards that really re-engages us on how do we know what we know. I think we have not appropriately trained ourselves in, in, in epistemology. And I'm hoping that what you're doing here with your podcast and uh, the kinds of questions that you ask also uh, get more people engaged in that. Mm. Yeah, we were, we were talking before, now offline, about a, an exercise you recommend that people do of 
of just swapping devices or swapping you know, YouTube feeds, you know, YouTube, YouTube algorithms with a friend or a spouse or someone to just see how different reality looks. It's as simple as just looking at somebody else's, you know, looking through somebody else's device, right? Or looking on, on their Twitter feed. Yeah. You could just, I mean, I think recommending that people, you know, watch a film as a group and then, you know, physically take out your phone at the end and just swap realities and just go through that person's YouTube feed or recommendations and see what they're being shown on the right hand side or go through the person's Facebook feed and see what kind of political news they're being served. There's actually a, a Mozilla tool called uh, ThereTube, which is exactly this kind of reality swap where you can actually use someone else's YouTube recommendations. And I think even recording videos of that, like if someone said, you know, you actually record, you know, a husband and a wife or an uncle and a, you know, and a nephew or something doing a reality swap. And just what is the reaction mm. when you really see how different this is? Because I think it's one thing for you and I to use phrases like political polarization or conspiracy theories over and over and over again. It's another thing to actually stare into someone else's world. And we're all living in the virtual realities that these things have created for us. And the only way we're going to pop out of it is having a more concrete understanding of what that actually mm. is. Well, when I do that with my 11-year-old daughter, I, I find that I'm watching a lot of the Merrill <laughs> twins, which is probably a healthier feed than looking at politics. It's healthier than QAnon, but I'm not sure it's healthy in the end. Well, Tristan, you've done more than I think anyone else to raise awareness on this topic. And it's not to say you, you don't have some very talented colleagues who are putting their shoulders to the same wheel, but it really, you, you have been indispensable here. And uh, the film is a great place for people to get the most vivid picture we have so far of the nature of this problem, because it's you and Jaron Lanier and uh, Shoshana Zuboff, and, and it's you know, so many people who, who have been prescient for many years running now on this topic, and they're all in one place talking about this. So go see The Social Dilemma on your device that is otherwise completely corrupting and, and subsuming your life. <laughs> and um, thank you, Tristan, for doing what you're doing. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.